Thank you so much, Hannah, and thank you guys. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so excited to be talking to you about one of my favourite topics, Shakespeare and Catholicism. So tonight I'm going to be answering four questions. What's the big deal about Shakespeare? Was he a secret Catholic? What is his relationship to the Catholic tradition? And why should I care? But before I do that, there they are. Before I do that, I want to share a little something with you. Now, I don't just share this with just anyone, so know that you're privileged. Some of you may be quite into Shakespeare, some of you may not be. Either way, in my years of Shakespeare research, I have developed a little something. It's in my arsenal, and I'm going to share it with you tonight. This is how to bluff, how to fake your way through a conversation about Shakespeare without having to know a thing. And it is foolproof. All you need is two things. The first thing you need is a favourite play and it has to be an obscure one. It has to be a niche one that nobody really knows. So tonight we're going to go with Henry VI Part 2. <laughs> because nobody ever checks up on Henry VI Part 2. This will have the added bonus of making the person that you're speaking to feel a little bit intellectually intimidated by you, which is never a bad thing. So, what's your favourite... Oh, there we are. What's your favourite play? Henry VI Part Two. Now, you just need one other thing. And this is... This is gold. It's taken me years. I have for you the universal phrase that you can say that is applicable regardless of what they say about Shakespeare, no matter what they are talking about, you just need to say this one thing. Now, you don't kind of declare it in a big way. You sort of, you take a deep breath. You look off into the distance and you say in almost a whisper, so many layers. <laughs> And I'm going to demonstrate it for you because I really want this to sink in. If you take one thing away from tonight, let it be this. It is a life skill and you'll thank me later. So, you sir, random person I've never met before. Let's try this out. So, I just love Shakespeare. My favourite play is probably Romeo and Juliet because I find it just has a really refreshing subversion of gender norms. What's your favourite Shakespeare play? So many to choose from, but I just think I'd say Henry VI Part Two. Part Two. Whoa! I I did know there was a Part Two. Damn. Okay. So you really, you obviously like really know your Shakespeare. And I mean, I just just what what do you see in him? What do you love about his work so much? Like like why is this your favorite play? Just there's so many ways. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, so four questions. Let's get cracking. What is the big deal about Shakespeare? There are thousands of answers to this question, but the one that I want to focus on tonight is his psychology, the brilliant psychology that he uses to create his characters. 
And the example that I want to use is one of my favorites, Lady Macbeth. She's an absolute scream. She is freaking underrated and I just love her. So a lot of you will be familiar with the play Macbeth, perhaps. You may have encountered it on your journey thus far. If you haven't, that is okay. Macbeth, Macbeth is one of the darkest and bloodiest plays in existence. Maybe that's why it's so popular. The plot is very simple and straightforward. Two aristocrats, Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, hatch a plot to kill the king. They are successful and the rest of the play watches what happens as a consequence of this sin. You watch them crumble piece by piece, spiritually, emotionally, materially. Now the easiest way to tell the difference between a comedy and a tragedy is that at the end of a comedy everybody gets married and at the end of a tragedy everybody dies <laughs> and this is a tragedy. So of course there's a, a bloodbath and uh, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are dead at the end of the play and this character stands there and says oh there they are, the dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. A fiend is, of course, a devil, a demon. The dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. And we sort of think, yeah, this is a fitting description of them. As we sit on our high seats of moral superiority, we say, yes, they are fiends. They are less than human. They are so evil. I just I can't relate to them at all because I'm just, I'm just nothing like them these evil, fiend-like beings. But Shakespeare, Shakespeare always loves to complicate things. And if we take a closer look at the play, we see that this is not the case. I want us to look at one line from this play, just one line. I'm going to set it up for you. So the plan is that conveniently the king staying at their house for the night, sleepover. And so the plan is that Lady Macbeth will get the two grooms who are there to guard the king while he sleeps drunk. And when they're lying passed out drunk, Macbeth will come in, grab one of their knives, stub, 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 smear the blood all over them, run off, and everyone will wake up in the morning and be like, oh my gosh, the king's own guards killed him. Like, genius, foolproof. And so there's this moment, Lady Macbeth successfully gets them wasted. So there's this moment where she's standing in the room of the sleeping king. Everything is dark, everything is silent, except for the gentle rise and fall of his breathing body beneath her. And she has the perfect opportunity to stab him herself. The knives are there, she can do it. And she walks away. She walks away and she goes back to her husband. She's like, all right, bro, you're up. They're asleep, king's there. Off you go, grab your knife, do it, be a man, get in there. And then once he's gone, she says to herself, and we're kind of thinking, well, why didn't you do it? And she says to herself, had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it, as in I would have done it. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. That's our line. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. 
Do you mean, Lady Macbeth, do you mean to tell me that the king, like the king of Scotland, your king, who's probably been king for your entire life and who you've seen quite a lot, he was at dinner at your house tonight. Do you mean to tell me that the king looks like your dad and you never noticed it until this moment when he is literally a blob of darkness surrounded by darkness. And then you notice the family resemblance. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is the world's first inkblot test. I think it's called a Rorschach test. You know, like, if you go to a psychologist and they hold up a blob on a piece of paper and they're like, what do you see here? And you're like, my mother criticizing me as a child. <laughs> and they're like, uh-huh, and what do you see here? And you're like, my father criticizing me as a child. <laughs> and the idea is that you project onto it from your subconscious. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Centuries before Freud was around, before psychology was even a thing, we, we have a character here, Lady Macbeth, who has a subconscious mind. He doesn't look like your dad, but you were confronted with this opportunity to commit murder and you couldn't do it, but you couldn't admit that to yourself. So you deceived yourself and created this alternative explanation. And Lady Macbeth, like she is, she is famous for being like apparently one of the evilest female characters of all time. Like she has this great bit earlier on in the play where she's, she's like praying to these evil spirits to make her evil. She says, fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Like, all right, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> and yet, and yet she doesn't know herself at all. It's this beautiful moment of evidence of a, self, of a subconscious mind. And this glimmer of her subconscious that we see here, it, it comes out again later in the play. So that very famous scene that most of us know where she's sleepwalking and she can't get the blood off her hands, we see once again her conscience bursting forth, which finally results in her suicide. And the beauty of this is that as we watch this unfold, we have to admit she's not just this alien and human fiend. No, much much more disturbingly, she is made of the same stuff that I am made of. I can see myself in her and everything that she is capable of, I am capable of. There's this moment in Hamlet where Hamlet is talking to a bunch of actors and he's explaining to them how to act and what theatre should be and he says that theatre holds a mirror up to nature and he means human nature. When we watch these plays, a mirror is being held up to us. And in them, in these characters, we see ourselves. That is the big deal about Shakespeare. And this is just one line. That was just one freaking line. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. Shall we move on to the next line? Like, they are all packed full of this richness. It's ridiculous. And we haven't even exhausted this line. So we've just done a psychological reading of this line. We could also do a theological reading of this line. Let's give that a go. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. He's a king, he's innocent, he's about to be murdered, and we're calling him our father. 
Who might he represent? Yes, Christ. The play is also asking the question on another level, what happens when we sin? When we sin, we, we crucify Christ. And what happens when we kill Christ? We kill our own souls. And what does that look like? Read on. That's what, that's what the play explores. There's actually a, a really cool article. Um, I think it's called Supernatural Solicitations. It's a Thomistic reading of Macbeth. And um, the authors... So, Thomistic means Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas said that when you, when you sin, when you commit a mortal sin, you lose yourself in a particular order. You lose your soul first. And then you lose your, your mental goods and faculties. And then finally you lose your material goods. And this article argues that this is that Macbeth tracks this order, that Macbeth follows this Thomistic structure. Another thing you notice when you look at this play is that so far from them being the dead butcher and his fiend-like queen, you weirdly find yourself barracking for them and kind of like relating to them a little too closely. So there's this moment when they've killed the king and they come out and they're kind of like, oh shit, what have we done? They're like, did you say something? I didn't say something. Did you hear that? No, I, I didn't hear a noise. And they're just kind of freaking out a little bit and you freak out with them. And you're like, guys, just, shh, just, just run, just go to bed, just go to bed so nobody finds you. And you're like, hang on a second. Why am I barracking for these people? Why am I on their team? It's actually very disturbing and very uncomfortable how much we relate to, these, to this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. So that's, a, that's one of the many reasons that Shakespeare is such a big deal. So, speaking of theology, let's not beat about the bush any longer. We came here to settle one question and one alone, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it once and for all right now. Was Shakespeare a Catholic? So in order to understand, well, in order to answer this question, in order to address it, we need to look at the context in which Shakespeare lived. Shakespeare lived in very interesting times. So Shakespeare, I, I'm only going to throw like one date at you during this talk because I hate numbers and so I just assume everyone else does. So I'll just give you one. Shakespeare was born in 1564. He died in 1616. Okay, two days. So think of him as like second half of the 1500s in England. So as we know, historically, we're sitting right in the Reformation period. And this is a, a very chaotic period. So Europe, Martin Luther comes along, nails 25 theses to the church door. All of a sudden, we've got We've got debate, we've got bloodshed, we've got wars, we're debating things that weren't particularly questioned before, like transubstantiation, purgatory, papal infallibility, all of these things. The Reformation gets going in England in the 1530s, so 30 years before Shakespeare's born. We have Henry VIII, he wants his divorce, and so the process begins. We see monks being 
flushed out of their thousand-year-old monasteries and, and Henry, like, giving them away to his friends. Um, altars are being stripped, stained glass windows are being smashed. Um, there's, a great, there's a great violence here, a violent rupture of a thousand years' worth of Catholic tradition. So England was Catholic for a thousand years. And then we have this massive, massive rupture. Henry dies. His son, Edward VI, comes to the throne. He's just a kid, only lives as king for about six years, and then he dies too. He's very hardcore Protestant. Protestant wasn't a word that was around him, but we're going to use it anyway. So he's very hardcore Protestant, pushes the Reformation. He dies. Mary comes to the throne. We know her as Bloody Mary because of all of the Protestant martyrs that she burned at the stake. So now all of a sudden we're flipping back again. Bring back the rosary. Start praying for the dead again. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. Uh, raise the statues. Paint the churches. It's all on again. Mary dies. Queen Elizabeth comes to the throne a couple years before Shakespeare's born and we're Protestant again. That's a lot for a nation to go through in 30 years. And this is the world that Shakespeare is born into. Now, you cannot just eradicate a thousand years worth of tradition overnight. 30 years is the blink of an eye. You can't do it. And as we know from looking at countries in our world today, often the church is made stronger by persecution. It's watered by the blood of the martyrs, as they say. So this church doesn't die. What happens to it? It goes underground. So we now have our faithful reformed Protestants attending church every week, reading their Book of Common Prayer and, 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 and having successfully separated from the Catholic Church. We have loyal, faithful Catholics who will either be killed for their faith or will be hiding underground. We also have people who are sort of content to just flip-flop and believe whatever the government tells them to believe. I'm particularly fussed by the whole thing. And then I think that we have a fourth group as well. If you are going to break a bone and reset it, and break it again, and reset it, and break it again, and reset it, I think that what we find here is that there are a lot of people whose faith in faith itself has been weakened, who now have serious doubts, who, who do not know what the truth is anymore. This, this incredible tension is really beautifully expressed in the play of Hamlet. So we see these worldviews overlapping and competing with each other in this play. At the start of the play, so Hamlet's father's been murdered. His ghost appears at the start of the play and says, hey, I was murdered by your brother, uh, by my brother, your uncle, go and kill him for revenge. That's how the action of the play commences. This ghost heavily implies that he has come from purgatory. Purgatory is a uniquely Catholic belief. So the worldview of purgatory, uh, sorry, the worldview of Catholicism is here in this play. Hamlet, our protagonist, and his buddy Horatio have just come back home 
from studying at the University of Wittenberg. Does anybody know the historical significance of Wittenberg University? Yeah. That was where Martin Luther nailed the 95 pieces on the castle church of Wittenberg. Freaking brilliant. Yes, thank you. So, uh, yeah, round of applause, yes. And I can confirm there was no phone in his hand. He did not Wikipedia that. That was knowledge, people. That was real knowledge right there. So Hamlet's come from Wittenberg University. Yes, Martin Luther's university. So this is a clear reference to the Reformation and to Protestantism. So now we've got the worldview of Protestantism in the play. Oh, by the way, the play is actually set in Viking Denmark. So we've got this pagan worldview happening in the play as well. And every so often, Hamlet has a good whinge about the meaninglessness of life. And so we have the worldview of, of nihilism in this play as well. The life has no meaning at all. There are a few others, but we'll leave it at these four. And they're actually, they're expressed in this minute way in the character of Horatio. So Horatio has this fantastic moment. It's only a few lines. His very name contains the word ratio, which means reason. So he's supposed to be the reasoning sceptic. But all of a sudden, the reasoning sceptic is confronted with a ghost. Very awkward. <laughs> and the ghost just stands there. He doesn't say anything. And so Horatio addresses it. And he addresses it like a good Protestant. So Protestants don't believe in purgatory. So any ghost that you see must be from hell, impersonating a, a person who once was. So he addresses it like a demon and he says, hey there, fiend, what are you doing? And the ghost is silent. It says nothing. I'm like, it's night time. And Horatio gets a little bit unnerved. And when he speaks again, he reverts back to the Catholicism of his childhood. And he says, are you from purgatory? Do you need prayers? Is that why you're here? And the ghost is silent. And when he speaks again, he's stripped back another layer and he reverts back to this old, very deep superstition, this pagan superstition. And he says, are you in search of buried treasure? Is that why you're here? It all just happens in the space of a few lines and you don't notice it if it's not paying attention, but it's this, it's this perfect example of, of this layering of, of beliefs, like sediment that we see in this society and the tension between them all. So, and it, it's interesting, like for those of us who know Hamlet a little bit, he, so like he's got one job, kill Claudius, your uncle who killed your dad, you now married your mum, just Kill the guy, how hard could it be, right? You've got a sword. And all throughout the play, he's kind of like, yep, I can do it, I'm gonna kill him, here we go, I'm ready. And he's like, but wait, what if the ghost is lying? Or like, oh, what if I shouldn't? And then, and then he gives himself up and he's like, yep, I'm ready. He's like, hang on. And then he just kind of gets distracted for a while. And, and people often say, you know, oh, Hamlet is just a play about a young man who can't make up his mind and just can't commit and like this procrastinating emo or something. <laughs> but in actuality, Hamlet's problem is that he's living in a world with all these different worldviews. Like, like we talked about four of them. So it's like, which, which one is the right one? Because if I'm going to be a good 
Viking's son, then yeah, I need to go and exact revenge and kill my father's killer. Easy. But if I'm going to be a good Christian, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, turn the other cheek. I'll go to hell if I do that. So, so that's, that's the tension of the play. That's his problem, is what is truth? What is reality? Which worldview should I be following here? Side rant. That doesn't make Hamlet some kind of intellectual tragic hero. Hamlet is actually a douche who does whatever he wants and uses whichever worldview is convenient to justify his actions. End rant. So this is a reflection of the world in which Shakespeare lives. It's a very complex world. And the question that we're asking is to which of these groups did Shakespeare belong? That's all we want to know. Now, obviously, he went along to church like everybody else did because you had to or else you'd get fined. Eventually, you'd get, um, be sent to prison. Eventually, you'd be killed. And if he was a Catholic, clearly, he wasn't prepared to be killed for his faith. So he's, not, he's nominally reformed. He's a Protestant. So we asked the question, what were his... We're asking the question, what were his personal, private, undocumented beliefs. The first thing we would logically do is look at his life. And we don't, we don't find a lot there because there's a lot about his life that we don't know. We don't have a lot of personal writings of his. And there's this whole period we call the lost years where he kind of vanished and knows what happened there. So we, we leave unsatisfied. We don't have like a, a diary or some personal letters or something. So we get nothing there. So then what everybody does is they look at his fiction, his artwork, his, his plays and his poems, and they try, to, they try to deduce from that his personal religious convictions. And so what, what you may have heard done and what a lot of people like to do is they cherry pick. So somebody might say, oh, the ghost in Hamlet is that he's in purgatory. Purgatory is a Catholic belief. Therefore, Shakespeare was a Catholic. And we can see the problem with this is that by the same logic, Shakespeare was also a Protestant because there's a clear reference to Wittenberg University here. And by the same logic, Shakespeare was also a pagan because Shakespeare's plays are full of pagan stuff. Like, he freaking loves it, he's obsessed with it. It's all about Ovid. Uh, and, you know, there's this fantastic line in Macbeth where he says, Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It means nothing, any of it. That's the nihilist's anthem right there. So by the same logic, Shakespeare was a nihilist or, or an atheist. Of course we have the temptation to recruit as a Catholic, of course we want him, but so does everybody else. And we're all kind of playing the same game here and it ultimately gets us nowhere. And there's something inherently problematic as well in, in assuming information about a person's personal life based on their fictional work. My favorite example of this is Shakespeare's obsession with syphilis. So, <laughs> Shakespeare's sonnets 
are full of references to syphilis and jokes about syphilis. And it's funny because you think that they're like these super romantic poems, and some of them are. Sonnet 116. Love is not love which alters when an alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. That is romantic. If you're going to like memorize a sonnet for romantic reasons, make it 116. But uh, in typical Shakespeare fashion, a, a lot of his love poetry, what he's actually doing is like making fun of the beloved, but like he's so smart, you don't even realize it. Anyway, so there's this, there's this weird obsession with syphilis going on here, like the STD. And I read two scholars, or I said this to someone the other day, and they thought I said Sisyphus, like the mythical guy that pushed the rock up the mountain. <laughs> Raise your hand, you know who you are. <laughs> but no, Syphilis. And I read, <laughs> word of the day, I read two scholars around the same time, and one of them said, because... Shakespeare is constantly making jokes and references to syphilis in his sonnets. We can clearly see that he did not have it. And the other scholar said, because Shakespeare is constantly making jokes about references to syphilis in his sonnets, we can clearly see that he had it. I think that beautifully illustrates the problem of trying to, well, what we're talking about, trying to assume something about a person's personal life based on their artwork. So, with all of this in mind, we really only have one answer that's left to us. As tempting as it is to want to say that Shakespeare was ours, and he may well have been, I think that as Catholics, we are lovers of truth, and we are seekers of truth, and we must never we must never compromise the truth in order to win an argument. So therefore, the only answer that is left to us, unless some further evidence is unearthed, is that we don't know. We don't know. So that was unsatisfying, I know. That was a little bit disappointing. <laughs> it was underwhelming. <laughs> There we go. So then, okay, all right, fine, we accept that. So then, what can you tell us about the influence of Catholicism on Shakespeare? What can you tell us about Shakespeare's relationship with Catholic theology and the Catholic tradition? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so what, what, what can we know? We can know these things. First of all, we know that Shakespeare had a very, a very deep and intricate knowledge of Catholicism, of Catholic teaching, theology, tradition, and culture. He was, uh, he, his mother was, um, his mother was from a very strong Catholic family, the Arden family, and he was most likely raised Catholic. Of course, as we know, just because you're raised Catholic doesn't mean you will stay Catholic. Most of his plays are set in Catholic settings, and a lot of his jokes and, and symbols and thoughts hinge upon, upon Catholic theology. We know that he had a great respect for the Catholic Church as well. And the best way that I think this is illustrated, or perhaps the simplest, 
is through something called anti-fraternal satire, which basically means making fun of priests and monks. Anti-fraternal satire. And it was all the rage. People were obsessed with this. Chaucer did it. All of Shakespeare's contemporaries were doing it. They freaking loved it. It's actually still popular today when you think about it. But interestingly, Shakespeare never does it. Not once. You will never find a kind of satirical figure or a, or a vice figure in, in Shakespeare that is a monk or a nun or a priest. They might be impersonated by some very evil, evil people, but you never see him engaging in this very popular and in very common and universal practice of anti-fraternal satire. So he had this respect. We can also say that he had a fascination with the Catholic tradition. A fascination. One of my favourite examples of this is in Hamlet again. So when we think of revenge, when you think you want to get revenge on someone, kind of like the, the place that your mind will go, maybe it won't, but the place that my mind goes, is you kill them. <laughs> That's kind of like, <laughs> I should probably have contextualised that. <laughs> But that's kind of the standard form of revenge. You kill somebody, you end their life. But oh, that is very vanilla. You have very little imagination if that's all you can come up with. And in Hamlet, there's this motif of this particularly, particularly dark and particularly Catholic form of revenge. And that is to murder somebody making sure that they have no time to go and make a final confession. So you don't just want to kill them, you want to send them to hell. And in fact, you know, this, the murder of Hamlet's father, which, which kicks off the action of the play, was committed by his brother by pouring poison into his ear while he was asleep in a garden. And yes, we could go off on, on a tangent about a theological reading of all the garden, but we won't. <laughs> And so the ghost complains to Hamlet and he said, I was killed with all of my sins heavy upon my head. And Hamlet whinges of it too. He says, my father was killed in the full blossom of his sin. When Claudius tries to kill Hamlet later in the play, same thing. He needs to be killed without a chance to go to confession. Hamlet murders a couple of his old school buddies, essentially from spite. And the way that he does it is they're on a ship to England. And he writes a letter to the king to the king of England. He's like, "Hey, bud, should you do me like a massive favor? So I've got these two guys coming to your land. When they get there, could you please have them killed for me? No shriving time allowed. Shriving is the old school word for confess. He specifically specifically requests have them murdered." No shriving time allowed. At the end of the play, when Hamlet finally gets his... Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> well, we, it's a tragedy, so you know everyone's going to die. <laughs> when Hamlet finally gets his revenge on Claudius, he kills him by pouring a poisoned chalice down his throat. And what can't you do when you're drinking? Talk. He takes away his, chance, his, his final chance to say something and symbolically to make a confession. 
this is a, is a particularly Catholic form of nastiness. And, and it really enriches the play once you see it, it as this whole other layer to the play. There's one other thing that I want you that I want to tell you about in regards to Shakespeare's relationship with the Catholic tradition and really Shakespeare's debt to the Catholic tradition. And it is this. I spent years researching this area and and I've, I've noticed something that isn't often talked about, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it is this. I'll say it and then I'll explain it. I have noticed that it is highly likely that the Catholic tradition, specifically the tradition of sacramental confession, suggested to Shakespeare the sophisticated psychological model that he uses in his characters. So think back to Lady Macbeth. Think back to how she has layers to her mind. She doesn't understand herself. She has a subconscious mind and she practices a complex kind of self-deception where she hides parts of herself from herself. Hamlet does it too. Once he's killed those two guys, he's bragging to his friend Horatio. And Horatio just makes this one comment. He's like, so, Rosencrantz and Guildenstone, go to it. And Hamlet responds with, they are not near my conscience. It's like, dude, nobody mentioned conscience. They are near his conscience. <laughs> so we see these self-deceiving characters. And if you look at the structures, the structures, the structures, if you look at the structures surrounding sacramental confession it's actually very intricate and very complex it's not simple so this practice has been around for like over a thousand years and, and it's been developed over time and, and it's been studied and, and practiced intensely and when you do it you have to examine your conscience regularly and you, you get lists of sins that you can go through because they might trigger something, they might prick something, you might recognise something. You're looking for parts of yourself that might currently be hidden because this tradition understands that we want to think that we're better than we are. And so we're going to try to hide, or we're not going to try, we do, we do hide parts of ourselves from our conscious mind. So we have to examine ourselves regularly. There were, like, way back in the Middle Ages, confession manuals that were hugely popular that, that priests would go through with you in confession and that you, through, you could go through on your own. When you confess, it has to be to another person and not just anybody. You, 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 you can't pick your buddy. You go to somebody who is objective, somebody who is professional, and somebody who is bound by a seal to keep your secret. So you, you, you're more inclined to want to be honest with yourself because you know that they will die rather than break that seal. And there was an example of this many hundreds of years ago. One of our saints was the confessor to a queen. And the king came to him and said, buddy, I think she's cheating on me. You've got to tell me what she's saying to you in confession. And he was like, 
no can do, seal of confession. And the king was like, I will kill you if you do not, I am your king, I will kill you if you do not tell me what she said to you in confession. And he said, kill me. And they threw him into a river and he died. That is the tradition of the seal of confession. That is what we have as part of this. We need to confess regularly. All of these structures are in place because implicitly we understand in this tradition that the mind has layers and that it hides parts of itself from itself. So they didn't they didn't have psychology either. They didn't have they didn't like the word subconscious wasn't around then. The word cognitive dissonance wasn't around then. But they knew at an implicit level about the subconscious mind and about the need to combat this kind of self-deception through rigorous self-examination. And when the Reformation comes along, they make confession illegal. They got rid of it. And there's kind of this vacuum here. And they're like, oh, well, if you feel the need to confess, just confess straight to God or like pick a friend and confess to your friend. And the problem here, of course, is that that will only work if I am completely visible to myself. If I know myself completely, if I am able to see myself fully and there are, no, there are no hidden corners, then yes, that will work. But we've lost here an understanding of, of a subconscious mind and of self-deception. The Catholic tradition understands this. The Council of Trent prayed this prayer from St. Augustine that says, From my secret sins, cleanse me, O Lord from my secret sins. So when we look at, at this tradition and this structure that Shakespeare sure as hell knew about and knew very well, we see that this matches up, this psychological model matches up with the psychological model of Shakespeare's characters. Lady Macbeth, Hamlet, they need a structure like this to be able to get to know themselves. They are not fully visible to themselves. This connection is something that, as I said, hasn't been explored a lot, but that is a very big deal. And to me, that is far, far more interesting and significant than the question of whether or not Shakespeare was a Catholic. Finally, we move on to, why should I care? Well, one of the reasons is that as Catholics, we have a unique perspective on Shakespeare. The scholars today who look at, who look at literature and history and Shakespeare, they often, well, they would struggle to relate to somebody who prays for the dead or who believes in angels and fiends and who who with their entire being wishes more than anything that they can be shriven before they die we are those crazy people so we get it we actually live we are inheritors of this tradition that goes back thousands and thousands of years so we actually have something 
people a lot in common with Shakespeare's first, the people who first performed his plays and his first audiences. I think that it has a certain colour for us and a certain richness and, and that you people in this room might be able to notice things and, and pick up on things and relate to things and understand things in a unique way that other scholars perhaps cannot always. And that is a humbling privilege. That is a humbling privilege. Another reason that we should care about this, and in case I haven't made it obvious, I am encouraging you to read your Shakespeare and to watch your Shakespeare and to read an article every now and then. Another reason is because anything that you will experience in this life, joy, heartbreak, fear, envy, betrayal, redemption, hope, boredom, all of it, you will find in Shakespeare, or grief, grief, that's a big one. You will find in Shakespeare expression of it. You will find in Shakespeare words to do it justice. That is no small thing. And finally, as inheritors of this incredible Western tradition, we have a responsibility to, to drink of these gifts and to pass them on to the next generation, but it will also benefit us greatly to do so. I leave you with this final thought. It is a privilege to be able to meet one of the giants on whose shoulders we stand. Thank you.